6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. And Manasseh and Ephraim, even they, they are reversed. When, when uh, Joseph is, uh, brings his sons to Jacob for blessing, he crosses his hands and upsets the father. He got it backwards. No, he knew what he was doing. That's what God told him to do. And so uh, they're reversed. And of course, the first Adam and the last Adam. Who is the firstborn? Christ. Last, but first. Okay? Because if, if he's pre-existent. Uh, Micah 5, 2. He's the only begotten. That's used five times. He wasn't begotten. He's, first, he's the firstborn, but he's not begotten. That sounds like a contradiction because you don't, we don't pay attention to the definition of the words. You follow me? And Isaac's also called that way. Abraham's only begotten son when he's called to be offered in Genesis 22. Take your only son, Isaac. What about Ishmael? He's now the son of the promise. And so the firstborn is positional. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. God's speaking to Moses. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. See, Israel is positionally in that role here. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. That's what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh at the burning bush. Now, Cecil B. DeMille did quite a job with the Ten Commandments, but it has some misleading aspects. It gives you the impression that it was Pharaoh's remark that caused that tenth of the tenth plague to be the firstborn. No, God had predicted that back at the burning bush in, Genesis, in Exodus 4. So, but again, that firstborn is one of position. Okay. And uh, Psalm 89. Boy, that's an incredible psalm, by the way. And, you're, and you want to check off some of the favorite psalms. Don't overlook Psalm 89 for lots of reasons. But starting about verse 20, God says, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. Have I anointed him with whom my hand shall be established? Mine arm shall also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. That's God's commitment to David. It's really astonishing to realize how God committed himself to David. And, uh, but... But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also upon the sea and his right hand in the rivers, and he shall cry to me, Thou art my Father and my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him, get this, my firstborn. God is making David his firstborn, and uh, higher than the kings of the earth. That's David. You say, well, that's reflected in the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Yes, it is, but there's much more going on. Four times in the Old Testament, David is going to rule in the millennium. Ooh, under Christ, of course. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. 
and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. It's a long time. That's a long time. Okay. Getting back to Colossians, we made it all the way to verse 16. Okay. We're just getting warmed up here. For by him, by who, who's that him? Who's he talking about? Jesus. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. See, he's just putting down the Gnostics, not by addressing the Gnostics, just expressing who Christ really is. He's preexistent. He's the creator. For by him were all things created. All things. That's a bunch. Okay? All things. Including Satan. That's the Mormon error. They say that he was, Satan was his brother. They have a whole thing in their traditions. No, 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 no. Uh, Kurt Cochran wrote a book many years ago between Christ and Satan. It's on demonology. The book is pretty good. The title's terrible. Because it creates the impression that it's between Christ and Satan. That's a joke. Christ created Satan. He didn't have to tiptoe around that guy. He did in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 at the temptation because that was his mission. Whatever cosmic powers there may be, they have nothing to offer any Christian. Because in Christ he has all things. There's nothing you lack in the universe if you have Christ. If you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter. If you do have Christ, there's nothing, nothing, anywhere you need tremble or fear. There are demons that might try to bluff you, try to challenge your understanding of that, your apprehension of that. But in Christ, you have, he's, he's defeated them all. Visible and invisible. Wow. There are things that are created that are invisible. That probably doesn't surprise us. Let's explore that a little bit. There are two kinds of things here. There are four dimensions that we experience. Length, width, and height. Three spatial dimensions. And what's the fourth one? Time. Time. Good for you. Okay. There are also six that we know exist. We can prove they exist experientially. But they're, they're curled in less than the, the wavelength of light, so you can't see them manifest in the typical ways. But we know they're there by a number of techniques. The current perception of the particle physics, that is, we, have, we live in ten dimensions. And there's a whole thing that I'm going to spare you, because I've got plenty of places to go. There is a view that the universe originally was committed in ten dimensions, and in Genesis chapter 3 it fractured. And it, it was split into four and, ten, four and six. And the four are, that we're, we're left with under the curse, the six are there to, uh, that are rendered um, separated from us. But that's a, that's a conjecture, but it's based on some perceptions. But we're going to talk a little bit about the boundaries of our physical reality, okay? And uh, don't let the picture confuse you. I just thought it was a colorful picture. It happens to be a manifold in ten dimensions. And uh, it's just a tutorial insight here, so I'll spare you that. It's just there for color. Uh, it's a Lagrangian fractal, and I won't get into all that. But anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about hyperdimensions. Oh, that's a fancy word for spaces of more than three dimensions, okay? 
you and I are familiar with three dimensions, right? The minute you talk about more than three, you're suddenly entering an area that we call hyperspaces, okay? And uh, let me show you what the Bible has to say about that. In Ephesians chapter 3, you find this passage, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Nice phrase, very laudatory rhetoric. Did you catch what he said? The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height? This is Paul talking. Was he a physicist? I don't think so. Did he just concatenate this by leading the Holy Spirit? I suspect so. But let's examine this. These are four dimensions, okay? That you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. The word breadth, platos in the Greek, that is, that is suggesting great extent. Can mean any of several things, okay? Length, okay? That's length, mechos. That's pretty straightforward. And uh, depth, that is depth or height, deep things of God it could include, baphos, if you will, and height, which is of height of place or of rank, okay? And uh, one of these can be used for time, incidentally. We've got breadth, length, depth, and height, and these are four dimensions. Now, the point I'm going to get at here a little bit, the fourth dimension that you and I experience, we call time. It's not uniform. We all tend to presume that an hour next week is like an hour last week. Not necessarily, okay? Time is a physical property. You have an atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado that's accurate to one microsecond per million years. You have a virtually identical clock like that at Greenwich, England. And it's also accurate to the same accuracy, and yet every year they're five microseconds apart, the two of them. Which one's right? They both are. Because the one in Greenwich is 80 feet above sea level, the one in Boulder is 5,400 feet above sea level, and the difference in gravity makes time at a different speed. If I have an atomic clock here on the platform and I lift it one meter, it speeds up by one part in 10 to the 16th. Not enough to adjust your schedules, <laughs> but it's predictable and measurable. So time varies. It's a, the key thought here, isn't the math, is that it's a physical property, okay? Time varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity, among other things. That's an important thing. It's a physical property. And you and I exist in more than three dimensions. And apparently we exist in ten. Now, we've just moved beyond Euclid. The kind of geometry we learned in school was Euclidean geometry. But in uh, June 10th, 1854, George Riemann gave what's regarded as one of the most important mathematical lectures in history, where he developed a thing called metric tensors. It took some fi over 50 years for that mathematics to have a practical application. Einstein used it to develop his theory of relativity, the four-dimensional space-time. A physicist doesn't speak of time and space separately. Space-time, Planck's constant, is a four-dimensional constant. Einstein went to his death frustrated. He was able, in, in grappling with the properties of space and time, he realized that it had an additional dimension. Not three, but four. And out of that, he broke, had a breakthrough called the theory of relativity. He went to his death frustrated because there's still some things he could not resolve. If he had gone one level up more to five dimensions, it would have yielded. And in 1953, Kaluza and Klein developed the 
more than four-dimensional spaces, five, six, and seven, which reconcile light and supergravity. And then in 1963, Yang Mills built their fields that reconciled together electromagnetic and both nuclear forces. And we'll get into this a little bit in a little bit here. But the point is, the current thinking since about 1984 is that we have super strings, one-dimensional strings vibrating in 10 dimensions, and that somehow explains it all. And that little model I use as a picture is just a colorful way to get into this whole subject. But the dimensions of reality. It fascinates me to discover that Nachmanides, who was a Hebrew sage that published in 1282, I think, in the 13th century, uh, his commentary on Genesis, in which he concluded, because in Genesis it speaks 10 times God said. Anyway, from Kabbalistic considerations of the text, he concluded that there are 10 dimensions to the universe, and only four of them are knowable. Six are not knowable. And uh, published in 1263. Well, what makes that curious is that in today's most advanced mathematical physics uh, periodicals, the particle physicists believe that we live in 10 dimensions. Four are directly measurable, three spatial dimensions in time. Six are curled less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and thus are inferable only by indirect means, which essentially means we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars building atomic accelerators to discover what Nachmanides figured out by studying the text of Genesis chapter 1. Okay. Now, it turns out to talk about hyperspaces, it's kind of difficult without a lot of special training. There are only two kinds of people that seem to be able to deal with spaces of more than three dimensions. Mathematicians with special training and small children. Okay, Those are our two candidates to help us here. But you can learn a great deal about dimensionality by going the other way, going down rather than up. Okay, In order to get that across, I have to introduce you to two friends of mine. But I want you to be compassionate, because these two friends of mine suffer from a very serious handicap. They live in only two dimensions. Okay, And they're Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And what Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Flat live in a two-dimensional universe, which is what we would call just a plane. Okay, so they're only they're limited to two dimensions. I'm a three-dimensional being, and I can come across and I enjoy some very peculiar advantages over them, because first of all, one of the things I can do is I can put my finger a millionth of an inch away from each one of those. I can enjoy more intimacy with them than they can with each other, and no matter where they are, they can be spaced far apart, but enjoying an additional dimensionality allows me to connect with both of them simultaneously, independent of their separation. You follow what I'm saying? I'm, I'm doing this to give you a feel. There, there are a number of ways to get at this that's very useful. I'll, I'll spare you some of those. A couple of others. If I, as a three-dimensional being, poke my finger through their space, they live in a two-dimensional world, um, what would they see? A circle. They would just see the intersection of their universe with my finger, which would be what? Roughly, call it roughly a circle. Okay. If a round ball should, a three-dimensional ball, should pass through their two-dimensional space, what would they see? Nothing. A dot that grows to a circle, shrinks back to a dot, and disappears. Right? You see, it gives you a feeling for this. Okay. So now let's go to the upper room after the, after the crucifixion. We're in a room that has a floor and a ceiling and four walls that are sealed. The disciples are in there. But out of nowhere, Christ enters. Why? Because he enjoys more dimensions than the four that they're dealing with, the three that they're directly experiencing. 
So he can come in and he can, you know, leave without passing through any of those six sides. That's what we mean by hyperdimensionality, and there's a lot of studies that you can get into if you have a pension to do that. Let's go at this another way. Let's represent man by the Vitruvian man of da Vinci, just to give it some color. That represents us, and let's talk about the universe in terms of size, with bigness going to the right and smallness going to the left, okay? If we look, the great discovery of 20th century science is that at the macrocosm, the bigness, the universe is finite. So if we go on the size of bigness, or largeness, if you will, there's a limit. Astronomy and astrophysics tell us that the universe is finite. Might be expanding, but it, is, it has a limit. It's not infinite. Many people have assumed that for a long, long time. They've proven that it's not. That's a staggering discovery from a, from a cosmological point of view. Okay, let's go the other way. Let's go to smallness. And here we enter the field, not of astronomy and astrophysics, we enter the field of quantum physics and subatomic particles. And we're going to explore a little bit smallness. Okay? Now, we discover that on the small side, things are made up of indivisible units. Let me give you an example. Well, let's back up a second, a couple other things to make. In school, you probably had an opportunity to represent an atom with what's the classical model, is a nucleus with an electron going around it. That, of course, is not the scale. Okay, we've got a nucleus in the center, we have an electron going around it. Now, the point is not the scale. Let's assume you wanted to make, we'll take hydrogen, one, you know, it's the simplest atom, and we're going to make a scale model of that. We're going to make, by the way, the atom itself is about 10 to the minus 8 centimeters in size, the nucleus is 10 to the minus 13th. It's obviously a lot smaller than the atom itself, right? By a significant factor, okay? In fact, it's a factor of 10 to the fifth. Because 10 to the minus 8 divided by 10 to the minus 13 turns out to be about 10 to the 100,000 difference. What does that mean? Let's assume I'm going to make a model of this atom, and I'll use a golf ball as the nucleus. Just to pick a, a model here, okay? We're going to build a model of this thing. Where do we put the electron? three miles away. Can you visualize that? It's hard to visualize. Golf ball and the electron is three miles away in a scale. You with me? It's, it's 100,000 times bigger than the size of the nucleus. Let's explore what that means for a minute. That's linearly. That's a linear measure. To deal with area, like let's assume we're doing this on a football field or something, you have to square that. Area is square feet, right? So that's 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 5th, which is 10 to the 10th. Okay. But I want to deal volumetrically, three-dimensionally, right? Well, I have to cube that. So it's 10 to the 5th cubed. It's cubic feet or whatever, right? That's 10 to the 15th. Now, the nucleus has a relationship to the volume of the atom that's one part in 10 to the 15th, right? What does that mean? That's the same relationship that one second has to 30 million years. You and I can't imagine that many years. We can represent it, but we can't grasp 30 million, you know, one second to 30, that's quite a difference, okay? Now, what does that mean? I have a podium up here. And 
And it seems solid enough to you and me, right? But let's assume you said, Chuck, I don't think there's anything there at all. I think that's really not, that's empty space. But some of you might say, I don't see, it's, there's nothing there, not really. Do you realize that conjecture number two is more descriptive of this podium than the fact that it's solid? If you say there's nothing here, you're more correct to the ratio of one second to 30 million years. See what I'm getting at? So this physical universe that we experience turns out to be an illusion. It's a, a, an electronic simulation. We are in a very elaborate video game, so to speak. Okay? Now, let's talk about these indivisible units. You know, if I take a piece of string of some given length, I obviously can cut it in half, right? No problem so far. And I can take whatever's left over and I cut it, I can cut it in half, right? And you would think that I could do that indefinitely. Maybe it gets so small I couldn't do it practically, but I can at least imagine however small it gets, cutting it in half and throwing half away and taking what's left and cutting it in half again. You with me? So I can go ahead and do that. But it turns out, strangely enough, when I get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, I can't divide it anymore because if I try, it loses a property called locality. It suddenly becomes everywhere at once. Does that sound like double talk? Pretty weird, right? Okay. It loses locality. And there is a thing called the Planck length. It's 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. There's a length of time, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, that you can't get smaller than that. You're going to have zero or that. In other words, we've discovered that everything, length, mass, energy, time, you name it, is made up of units that can't be divided. One way to express that, it's digital, not analog. It's made up of, it's like a piano keyboard. You can hit any key you want, but you can't hit between them. Follow me? There's an indivisible aspect to it. Now that's exactly, that's why they call it quantum. Whether it's energy, mass, length, energy, it, it, they're, they're made of indivisible units. Okay, so let's get back to this map of, on the big side, we have finite, uh, experience, it's finite large-wise. On the smallness, we discover, it's also made up of indivisible units. There are two concepts in the universe that we can represent mathematically, but we can't find physically. One of those is infinity. You can't find things that are infinitely large because the universe is finite. You also can't get things that are infinitely small because be below the quantum, they don't, they, have, they don't have locality. Okay? Now, so it's, what it means is, this universe that we experience has, it has finite limits. We find ourselves as participants in a digital simulation. This thing feels solid because the electrical fields of the atoms in my hand are colliding with the electrical fields of the atoms that make up the podium. But they're mostly empty space. What do you mean mostly? Well, the ratio of 30 million years to one second is the ratio, nominally, okay? And this is caused in Scientific American, January, uh, uh, June, excuse me, June of 2005. There's an article in which they conclude, for a number of reasons, that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. No kidding. That's what the Bible has said all along, okay? Now, this, is the, this leads us to the verse that I quoted earlier, but I, I'll, I'll put it out here more clearly. 
In 1 John 3, 2, we have, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. That's a physics statement. That means that whatever dimensionality he enjoys, we also will share. We're not going to see an n minus 1 representation of an n-dimensional being. We're not going to see a two-dimensional photograph of a three-dimensional person or a four-dimensional representation of a five. Now, whatever it is, we're going to enjoy the same dimensionality. That's staggering. That verse is staggering in its implications. But uh, we shall see him as he is. Strange thing for John to be moved to reveal to us. Getting back to Colossians, I thought you, you probably thought we'd never make it. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be. And then we have these Greek terms for angels, uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Wow. Okay. Thrones, dominions, principalities. That's the, the, these refer to hierarchy of angelic beings that the Gnostics wanted to worship. And uh, by him and for him. Three prepositions, by, for, and through, are used to refute the philosophy of the false teachers. He is the heir of all things. We are the house guests of somebody else's universe. And he's the guy. He's the man. He's the king. Don't get confused on that subject. History is headed somewhere, and we all have an accountability. And we're going to explore that before this is all over here. Created by him and for him. And by the way, disbelief or denial is no refuge. We all have an appointment with destiny. And as biblical Christians, we love to talk about the rapture. And the, one of the test questions is, what's the first thing that happens after the rapture in heaven? Not on the earth. On the earth, we always make a little chart. There's the rapture, and then there's that little interval, and then there's the 70th week of Daniel, and then the abomination. We go through and make our little charts. On the earth, great. Okay, good, good. We're not going to be on the earth. What's going to happen to us? We're up there. What's the first thing that happens up there? Uh-oh, thing called the Bema Seat. What's that all about? Well, we're going to get to that as we go here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 